and that's not because it's import, not important. It's not because we can't preach and learn from it, uh, but in order to save time and to save me from trying to pronounce all those names. Uh, but we'll spend some time talking about the significance of that chapter, specifically Esau and what his life will play out for the rest of the children of Israel. But with that, we will turn to Genesis 35. We will read the first 15 verses. I invite you to stand as you are able for the respect of the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 35 reads, And God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them underneath the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak below Bethel. And so he called its name Alan Bakuth. And God appeared to Jacob again, and when he came from Padanaram and blessed him, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob, no longer your name shall be Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in, in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in that place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. And so Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Our Father, this morning we ask that you would help us to... Put aside any distractions that may be on our minds and hearts, that you would help us to focus on your word, that you would help us to understand your word, that we would be changed by it, that we would feel your presence, that we would be reassured by the good news of the gospel in our lives. Father, many of us may come this morning and we are weary and heavy laden. We pray that as you promise, we will find rest in your word this morning. 
We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. First, we'll see in these first 15 verses that God continually calls after his wayward children. When we last read about Jacob, he had settled near the city of Shechem in chapter 33 going forward, and apparently thinking that he had fulfilled his vow to worship God upon his return to Canaan in Genesis 28. However, as we saw last week, or if you weren't here, you remember your history of Genesis where there was the rape of his daughter Dinah and the slaughter of a town, indicating that his decision there was not a wise one. It was not where God wanted him. He was not living the life that God wanted him to live. In fact, it was not the plan that God had for Jacob and his family in any way. We saw that Jacob had anger in that moment, but it wasn't at the rape of his daughter. It was the ruthlessness of his sons, Simeon and Levi, not because he was upset that they avenged their sister, but because they might have ruined his name and standing in the town. This showed his foolishness. It affected him spiritually, clouding his knowledge of the Lord's will and really revealed a wavering faith. And yet we know from our study of Jacob so far that he was a worshiper of the one true God, Yahweh. That Jacob not so long before had actually had an encounter with God at Bethel, where, God, where the God of his father and grandfather truly became his God. Up to that point, he had heard his father and grandfather talk about this God who called Abraham out of nowhere to leave his family and travel to some promised land. But Jacob had a direct encounter with God. Therefore, it should be no surprise that the Lord compassionately intervenes Jacob from his stupor and spiritual slumber to compassionately wake him up and say, Jacob, it's time. Which is what we see in verse 1, that God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. The Almighty appears to Jacob in Shechem and reveals Jacob's vow that he had not yet fulfilled that said, hey, I will worship you. I will be in this land. You see, the Lord has a plan in which Jacob plays a significant part. And he's not going to let Jacob's dulled spiritual sense interfere with the plan that he has set before the beginning of time. And we should also find great comfort in that. For as John Calvin puts it, the providence of God watches for our salvation, even when it most seems to sleep. Meaning when our own spiritual states seem to be asleep, where we're dulled to the presence of God, that God is not content to leave us there, but to call us back to himself. God is not content to let those whom he has put affection on wander or stay the same way that they are, but he is 
desiring and bringing them to change them to be more into the likeness of his son, Jesus. So God calls to Jacob, coming as he does right near the end of the story. So we've learned about Jacob. We've learned that he's made some blunders along the way. He's taken multiple wives. He's had children with those women as well as their maidservants. He's tricked his older brother out of birthrights. He's been deceptive all along. He hasn't trusted God completely. And yet, God says, you're the one that I have chosen to bring this, to make this come to pass. And just as Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, was called to offer up a sacrifice near the end of his life, so too Jacob has been commanded to go and offer up a sacrifice and to worship the Almighty God. God's good pleasure is to bring his sinful people back to himself, even when they've spent years in spiritual wildernesses. Today, he continues to embrace prodigal sons and daughters, calling them to return again in faith and repentance, just as the prodigal son in Luke 15. That the father He's not waiting inside for his son to return, but he is out looking and he sees his son a long way off and he doesn't wait for his son to make it all the way to the house. But in fact, he runs out to him and embraces him and says, this is my son. And if you recall that parable, the son most likely stunk for he was living with pigs traveled a long way, was in rags, and the father does not hesitate to embrace him and welcome him back. So too does our good father do that to us when we wander away from him. And Jacob takes several steps before going to Bethel that were instructive for the nation of Israel going forward, whom he is the father of. First, Jacob orders his family to put away foreign deities in verse 2. And we think, okay, well, if there were foreign deities, his family, he's not doing a good job of instructing them on how to worship Yahweh, that he has let them come into his home and worship false gods. But here he is correcting the mistakes that he's made, saying, put away the foreign gods which is always the first step for anyone who wants to serve the true God. Abandon the idols, the rival gods, which all of us have. They may not look like little trinkets or golden calves, but anything that puts our heart and affection towards anything that is not God becomes an idol in our life. And the first step in turning back is to remove those idols from our life because we recognize that the God we serve and the God who loves us, yes, he loves us, but he is a holy God. And his holiness cannot be around sin. The only way is if he destroys the sin. And so he calls them, he says, come bring me your idols. Just as 1 John 5, 21 says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Whenever we sin, our desires, put our desires in the place of God's law. Therefore, we make ourselves the law 
makers. But in turning from our sin, we admit that we are not sovereign and recognize that there is only one person who can sit on the throne for us to worship, to sit on the throne of our hearts. Secondly, we see that Jacob's household should have been wholly devoted to the Lord, yet his family had idols. These gods, they were worshipped, they served as good luck charms, they polluted the worship of Yahweh. And you remember that Rachel stole fertility gods from her father as they were leaving, going out, and she says, you know, I'm not quite confident in this God of Jacob yet. I'm going to try to bring some good luck charms with us. The presence of these idols in the patriarch's clan reminds God's people in every age to make sure that your family's devotion is to God's alone. That parents, your work in discipleship never ends. That we cannot assume our children are Christians or followers of God just because we bring them to church each Sunday. Just because we have family devotions with them. That our charge as parents is to lead them, guide them, pray for them, correct them, point them to the Lord, and pray that he saves them. Matthew Henry wrote, commentating on this, in those families where there is a face of religion, many times there is much amiss and more strange gods than one would suspect. So it's not enough just to do the church thing. Intellectually, we can say we follow after God. Our children can say they follow after God. But there needs to be a change in their hearts that are hard towards God. And we are not the ones that can save them. It is only Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross that provides a way of salvation. Lastly, on this thread of idols, the overarching command to forsake idols teaches us about Christ, that Jesus demands absolute allegiance in the gospel. In Matthew 8, 18 through 22, it reads, Now when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him that foxes have holes and birds have the air and nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This call of Jesus to follow him alone is especially a clear indication that our Savior is one with the Lord who, through Jacob, called his people to cast away any potential rivals, that God is a jealous God and is not interested in sharing his throne with any false gods that we put in his place. When Jacob called his family to repentance in preparation for their journey from Shechem to Bethel, idolatry was not the only sin that was renounced. In addition to idols, his wife and children surrendered their earrings, which were probably goods that they took from pillaging the Shechemites. 
Clearly, the family recognizes the wrongness of their deceit and murder, and they give up their jewelry to show their repentant hearts. We're four verses in, and we have to wonder, why does God even bother on this wayward family? Because not only is God a God of grace, but he is a God who keeps his promises. Once again, the Almighty's promise to be the guardian of his people is vindicated. And the future Israelite conquest of Canaan foretold. Later we'll read in Joshua that Rahab would tell the Israelite spies that Jericho and its surrounding area feared the army led by Joshua, not because the army is impressive, but because their God is impressive. Ancient Israel could expect God to reward their obedience just as he blessed Jacob's faithfulness on his way to Bethel. Because we need to remember that this isn't written specifically to us. It's written for us, but this was written for the Israelites. And Moses is writing so that they remember these stories of what God has done so that they can continue to have hope and faith in him. That God pledged that Israel's armies would fear his people. And we see that as, as terror from God in verse 5. Terror. I don't know what that terror looks like. But obviously, it is enough to fall upon the cities to cause none of them to chase after the Israelites. After they just murdered a whole town, a whole group of people. But... Can we who are God's own today rightly expect as much blessing as well? Especially thinking about how we live in what seems a different time than Jacob and his family. The sufferings that we might face are different. The sufferings even in this room that we face are different from one person to the next. And the answer to that question is, can we expect such blessing from God? The answer is yes. As long as we remember the Lord's fullest reward for our faithfulness will not come until the new heaven and the new earth. Yes, we receive some blessings here on earth. We are brought into the family of God. We get to be with other believers we no longer have to fear eternal punishment in hell because of what Jesus has done on the cross. We no longer have to fear being alone because the Spirit indwells all who call upon the Lord. But our final hope is in the new heaven and the new earth where God makes all the wrong things right. Matthew Henry again comments, The way of duty is the way of safety. Since those who perseverely serve Christ, are storing up great rewards for themselves in the future. That we might, as the Apostle Paul say, receive the saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Through all this, God, at any point in the line of Abraham, could have looked and he said, you know what? I made a mistake. These people I chose are wicked and awful and forgetful, and I think I'm just going to start over and find someone else. But he doesn't. 
In fact, God knew exactly how wicked Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, on down the line to you and me, how wicked we are and still. He continued the line of Jacob in order to bring King Jesus to come to earth to live a perfect life, to die a death on the cross and to raise from the dead, to provide a way of salvation because God looked and he saw us and he said, you know what? I love you even though you are so wicked and forgetful and I know exactly what you'll be like and I know you won't be the best follower. I know you'll have your doubts about God. I know you'll constantly sin. I know you won't love your spouse the way you should. I know you'll break my laws, but he says, you know what? I love you. And I'm providing a way of salvation for you. That God knew before he set the world in motion everything that would occur under the sun, and he still did not change his plan. The skies proclaim his awesomeness. Creation points to his holiness. And yet, he is mindful of sinful men and women. Before the creation, he chose you and me, a holy, majestic, awesome God who knew the sinfulness of our hearts, who wasn't surprised when Adam and Eve sinned. He knew that one day we would all fall and continually sin against us, and yet he says, those wayward, wicked people, those are my people who I will save, and I will change their hearts and change their likeness to be more like Jesus. He doesn't say, hey, get your act together, get cleaned up, no, he invites us like the father of the prodigal son, come to me. Bring your stink, bring your sin, bring your brokenness, bring your wickedness, and I will do the cleaning because you can bring nothing to the table that is worthy of my love. And so as we continue, we read in verse 16 that they journeyed from Bethel. And when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor. She had a hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And when Israel, remember Jacob's name is changed to Israel, when Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. And now the sons of Jacob were twelve. And the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Nephetali, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servants, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Pandam Aram. And what we see is that God works through heartache. 
Tragically, death once more strikes God's people as Israel, Jacob, and his clan move south from Shechem to Bethlehem following God's command to leave Shechem to go back to the promised land and Jacob's beautiful and beloved wife, Rachel, does not make it all the way. You remember that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, than all the maidservants, the one whom he worked for many years, longer than he should have to marry. And Rachel's death probably was not that much of a surprise to those who were in her traveling party. For many women died in childbirth in the ancient world, as they were up in years, for Rachel is no longer young. And yet the birth of Rachel's last son in verses 16 through 18 vindicate again one lesson God has taught us repeatedly in our study of Genesis, that he is faithful to his people even in the darkest time. He enabled Abraham to rescue Lot when he was kidnapped and would not let Abimelech block Isaac's access to water. With Benjamin, the Lord showed himself true in the midst of Jacob's sorrow, for Rachel had pleaded with God for one more son. And God's grace is clear because he gives Rachel a chance to see her prayers answered just before her death. And with Benjamin, her request is granted, and he starts out his life as Ben-Oni, meaning son of my sorrow but is renamed Benjamin, son of my right hand by his father. The highlights, the joy that Jacob found in his sons recalls his love for Rachel, the preferred wife, if you remember. But pain and sorrow attend after the birth. Instead of a time of much celebration of another son, there's sadness But this is a good sign that God is continuing his promises that he is going to make a great nation. It's much easier to make a great nation out of 12 sons versus two sons. Showing that even through the heartache that God can accomplish his will, that he's going to make those promises he's made, that there will be a great nation and through that nation a king will come. Unfortunately, the death does not stop there. Genesis 35 ends with the account of the death of and burial of Isaac. And yet again, we're brought to the second oldest son, Esau. As we look at verse 27, and Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre and Krith Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180, and Isaac breathed his last. And he died and was gathered to his people old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him together. Genesis 35 shows us how each generation of God's people must trust him to do what he says, even if the full realization of his promises remains in the future. Jacob affirmed his trust in the Lord when he buried Isaac and the only piece of Canaan that his family owned. Remember that God had promised Abraham a land, a promised land, a large land for his family and their descendants, and they moved to the one piece that they had. 
And he moved in faith, brought his family there, calling them to put away foreign gods. And each generation must likewise reform the church according to the scriptures to trust our Father, meaning that we need to look and see what sin is in us and change to become more like God. And when things seem difficult and terrible and not going well, that we continue to trust in God. Which brings us our introduction to Esau, which takes us to Genesis 36, which shows us that God blesses the unbelieving. The extended genealogy of Esau in Genesis 36 is a long list that sets the stage for the final section of Genesis. That Moses typically inserts family history of an unfaithful son just before he begins to relate the history of the heirs of Abraham's covenant. We see this happening when Moses writes about the generations of Ishmael before he lists the life of Jacob. And here we have Esau's offspring before we contain the rest of the history of Jacob's sons, especially Joseph in the next chapters. If we were to briefly look over it, we can see a couple things first. The names of Esau's Canaanite wives in verses 1 through 3 do not match the names of his wives given in chapter 26 and 28, which means that Esau has married even more women, many more that he has fraternized with the Hittites, the Ishmaelites, all of those who his family warned him about. <clears throat> this squares well with the description of Esau's sexual immorality in Hebrews 12, verses 15 through 17, which says, See to it that no one falls to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one in sexual immorality or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. <clears throat> if Isaac's oldest son lived for the moment, forfeiting his spiritual blessing for, for a satisfaction of physical hunger, hunger in Genesis 25, surely he would be capable of giving into momentary lust by taking many wives as his heart desired. Genesis 36 stresses the physical blessing that Esau, despite his sin, is given. His sons founded the great nation of Edom, which will be great rivals to the children of Israel. Since they were born in Canaan, the land that God had given to Abraham, it is clear that the blessings on this faithless son Esau were tied to his residence in the same land where the Lord will work and we will see visibly the sons, the generations to come as God works to grow the nation of Israel. Edom's existence brings to pass the Almighty's prediction that he foretold in Genesis 25 that Esau will father a great nation. And if God kept his promise for this faithless son of Isaac, we can be sure 
that he will keep all his promises that he has given to his faithful servants. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Matthew 5, 45, that God is blessing this son who wanted really nothing to do with Yahweh. Surely he was taught about this man or this being God from his father. And yet he decided that, you know what, I'm going to go about and do my own thing. And yet God blesses him, gives him a great nation, gives him great descendants, blesses him with wealth. And if God does that for those who would consider themselves God-haters, maybe not in those words, not followers of Yahweh, how much more can we trust the promises that he makes to us who believe in God, believe what he did on the cross for us? Which brings us to our final point in our final verse in Genesis chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. That God is faithful to his promises to his people. That God had brought them to the land that he had promised to Abraham. And it has been a long journey to get them back to this land. That they have wandered to and fro. They have sinned much. They have learned much. They have grown in their wealth and their family size. This passage reveals to us, this verse reveals to us all the promises made prior. It reveals God's omniscience, his goodness, his faithfulness, his grace, his redemption, that he has been working all along to get to this point in the story, to this promised land in Canaan. The goodness of God to others should remind us of his goodness to us. The fact that God always keeps his promises to his people should remind us that he keeps his promises to us. The fact that God keeps his promises to his people despite their sins reminds us that his grace is sufficient for our sin. Friends, as we read the Bible, that truth that God keeps his promises should be a sure and steady anchor for us no matter what situations we face. No matter what hardships we go through, no matter what physical ailments we find ourselves suffering with, no matter the persecution we face now or in the future, the fact of the matter is it doesn't matter because we have something that is greater than all of those things. A God who is faithful to keep his promises to his people. Let us pray. I'll give you the next couple moments to reflect, to pray in your heart. And I will close us in prayer.
our Father, you are so good, so great, so holy, so loving, and we are so undeserving of that love. Father, we too are often like Jacob. We think in our minds we're doing what's best for us, but that means we don't follow after your law. That we turn to a life of sin for momentary satisfaction. That, Father, we neglect spiritual disciplines that draw us closer to you. We allow our hearts to grow cold to you. But, Father, you are there with arms wide open, calling your wandering children home. The good shepherd leaves the 99 to chase the one. Father, I pray that we would rest in your faithfulness, that when we find ourselves doubting, not knowing what to do, that we would remind ourselves of the truths of Scripture, that you are a faithful God, that nothing can stop your plans, that you will bring all things to pass that you set in motion before the beginning of time, and that we would find peace and comfort in that. Father, if there are some here this morning who don't have that hope, that confidence, that peace, I pray that you would move within their hearts, that they would see that they can bring their brokenness to you, and you will not turn them away. You will embrace them as sons and daughters that if there are any who have questions, that they would come find myself or one of the elders, that we might explain even more the depths, the joy, the riches of the gospel, of Jesus coming to earth for us, dying in our place, so that when you looked upon us, you would see his righteousness instead of our filthy rags. Father, we pray that you would help us to be changed more into the likeness of your Son, not because of anything that I have said, but because of your working through the text in our hearts, that we would seek to be faithful, for you are doing far more than we even understand at this moment, that you are playing the end game with the new heaven and the new earth, and you have a plan that we cannot see, that we will trust in you. In your son's holy and precious name, amen. Friends, we have the privilege to partake in the Lord's table. You can take the cup either in your chair back or on your seat. 
if you are a follower of Jesus, that you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, we invite you to come participate with us. If you don't know, if you have concerns, if you have doubts, this isn't something that saves us. This is something to help us remember what Jesus did for us. So we receive our instruction from the scriptures. We take the wafer, the cracker, and the Bible says, and Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes again. Stand and join as we sing and respond to the Lord. There is no other so sure and steady. My hope is held in your hand. When castles crumble and breath is fleeting, upon this rock I will stand. rock I will stand. Glory, glory, we have no other King but Jesus, Lord of 